I tried reading during a hockey game. People really frown on that. Like, <laughs> like you'd get comments. Hey, readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 240. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on the show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, right now, our Patreon community is a veritable celebration of summer reading. We've shared some wonderful bonus episodes recently on topics like fantastic new romance novels that weren't in the summer reading guide, absorbing summer nonfiction, and books by Black authors I frequently recommended here on What Should I Read Next. Our new bonus last week was a fun guest follow-up with my husband, Will, who I talked to on episode 214. We discuss what summer reading is like for each of us in this unusual year, we share a pile of books and authors we both enjoy reading, and discuss what we're each planning on reading next. Our next Patreon live stream is coming up on Thursday, July 2nd. These are live online events Brenna and I do with our community, and they give you a chance to hear what's happening here around What Should I Read Next HQ, ask your questions of the two of us, and get your own book recommendations. If you aren't a member of that community yet, now is a great time to join us there. You'll get access to previous live streams, the Summer Reading Guide unboxing event we did in May, which is so much fun, even if you do already have the guide. Plus, you get instant access to close to 50 What Should I Read Next bonus episodes. Join now to get those perks and join Brenna and me live on July 2nd. Go to patreon.com slash what should I read next and become a member today. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash what should I read next. Readers, on our recent Ask Me Anything episode, I got lots of questions about recommending books for kids. When it comes to children's recs, I rely on people who know children's books, and Literati Kids sure does. Literati Kids is a book club subscription that sends five beautiful children's books to your door each month, handpicked by experts. They tailor each box with age-appropriate selections for children aged 0 to 12, and around themes like mystery, adventure, and history. My 10-year-old loved his Literati box and found several new favorite authors among their personalized selections. In addition to the books your child receives, receives artwork from world-renowned artists, personalized stickers, and other fun goodies in each monthly box. Go to literati.com slash read next for 25% off your first two orders and pick your kids book club today. Remember, no one else has kids book clubs like these. Only at literati.com slash read next can you get 25% off your first two orders and receive five incredible kids books curated by experts delivered to your door every month. That's literati.com slash read next. Want a confidence boost? Take coloring your hair at home to the next level with Madison Reed. Get gorgeous professional hair color delivered to your door starting at $22. This is game-changing color you can do at home and look as if you just came from the salon without the time or expense. At Madison Reed, master colorists blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones to create over 55 gorgeous multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. What should I read next listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with the code READ. Use the code READ, R-E-A-D, at madison-reed-r-e-e-d.com. I think most readers know the feeling of picking up a book at exactly the wrong time and getting burned. Today's guest, KJ Del Antonia, picked up a lot of the wrong books during a difficult time in her life, and those experiences changed her perspective on a hotly debated literary topic, trigger warnings. And here's a trigger warning for this episode. KJ and I are going to talk about cancer, specifically breast cancer. It's not the whole episode, and the conversation doesn't go into detail, but we want you to be aware of that before diving in. 
Today, we're also talking about moving beyond bedtime reading, covert audiobook operations, and how mystery novels could save your local bookstore. Let's get to it. KJ, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I am a constant and passionate listener, and I blame you for many, many incidents at my local bookstore. Ooh, tell me about a good one. Pretty sure I pulled Louise Penny, her first book, uh, Still Life. I'm pretty sure that was you. Does that sound like something you recommended to someone recently? I mean, now I have to make myself not talk about Louise Penny on the podcast, because it's <laughs> okay. like I've hit some cosmic limit. We do try to spread around the book love, but basically, yeah, that could totally be my fault. So I've got a little list here. But I also listened to one of uh, the book riots get booked. So you guys are jointly responsible. But I've got um, Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. (laughs) That wasn't you. That was not me. But that's an amazing title. Yeah, isn't it? I ordered that from my bookstore, too, along with Don't Overthink It. They're going to come together. So Don't Overthink It is going to snuggle right up with the Southern Vampire Slayers. Oh, so this is very recent. So you're just getting started on Louise Penny? I'm just getting started on Louise Penny. And I have been... I was a passionate mystery reader as a teen and a young adult. A mystery is on my three top books, but I've been really out of them for a long time, other than um, Anthony Horowitz and Peter Swanson. I haven't, oh, and, um, oh, what are the ones that the detective is a young girl in England and she lives with her dad and her two sisters and her sisters are wicked mean. Oh, yes. I'm so good at this game. Oh, I can picture them. <laughs> I can they too. They are um, Flavia. 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 Yeah. So I did some of those. My husband has done all of them. That's something we sort of would both read, which is fairly rare. I haven't gotten through them all. I got a little frustrated with how mean the sisters were. <laughs> Can't this family just... Can we just edge towards togetherness? But we never, ever did. I don't have a sister, but my friends who had sisters joked and said like, well, you know. (laughs) But what we need to do is get people hooked on a good series. Because if you love still life, then you've got like 14 more books to read. And if you love the first Flavia book, you've got seven or eight more at this point. And so basically, if we can sell you one book, we can sell 15 (laughs) and we can keep the book business in business. Independent bookstores could always use some love, and that's especially true now in these weird, uncertain, virus-filled economic times. Mysteries for humanity. Mysteries for humanity. I like it. It's a plan. So I haven't started Still Life yet, but it is in my my rather deep TBR pile. All right. Can I give you my Louise Penny spiel? Make me move it to the top of the pile. Well, I am a devoted fan. And also, I think readers like to know going in that book one is quieter than the others. It's slower to develop. In books two and three, the actual murders that are being solved are pretty weird. And then the series really hits its stride, I think, in book four, where she also introduces this big like master plot that carries Mm. over the rest of the series, basically. We're, We're still seeing how that plays out. Sounds extremely fun. Well, I have to say that the mystery, I am not a thriller reader. It's just not my thing particularly the young woman in peril genre, just really makes me nuts. I'm <laughs> Can we put some young men in peril for a change, please, people? So I'm not a thriller reader. So quiet mysteries are, are generally fine with me. When I go back and look at my mystery, my mystery history, it's on the cozy side. It's on the weirdly cozy side. Marjorie Allingham, big, huge favorite of mine. I don't know who that is. Oh, okay. I'm just going to take a moment to cry quietly over in the corner and then I'm going to No, don't back. cry. Don't cry. Just tell me. Just tell me about Marjorie. 
So Marjorie Allingham was one of the grand dames of British mystery, uh, along with Agatha Christie and Dorothy Sayers. She's got a series, so you can support your bookstore with this. Her detective is Mr. Campion. He is a apparently a wealthy dilettante and the younger son of a family that it is clear is extremely important in British life in this period, which is circle World War One and past World War One. So he's very important, but you sort of never know exactly, is he royal? Is he what? And he's uh, extremely fun and funny. Uh, how can I sell? Some of them are super weird. Like there's one where he's looking for someone that's trying to steal the chalice that's kind of like a, a religious artifact. And it turns out, I'm not, not really spoiling anything because these are 100-year-old books, but it seems all along as though there's a weird mystical element to the mystery. And it turns out that there's not a weird mystical element to the mystery, but there is a weird mystical element to life in this castle in England. I love them so much. I may have to go back and reread them just because we've talked about them. Do you need to start at the beginning if you're just finding your way to Marjorie Allingham? You absolutely do not. You should find the one that appeals to you most. He starts out very young, and she starts out fairly young as a writer, and then he he ages all the way into late middle age, I feel like. It's clear that mysteries have a prominent place in your heart, and yet you started by saying that you don't really read them anymore, at least not like you used to. No, I don't, I don't know why. Right now, I tend to read much more... Well, I went through a really long nonfiction phase. I was working as a journalist. I needed a lot of information. I was writing nonfiction myself. So I feel like I left the mysteries while I was in the nonfiction phase, and I may be coming back to them, but there's so much other fiction out there. I just haven't sort of crawled back into the world of mysteries yet, I guess. <laughs> crawled. Well, <laughs> tell me what the rhythms of your reading life are like these days. Yeah, I'm, I'm in a fiction phase. I'm in a fiction phase. I've got a couple of nonfictions going because I've always got a bunch of books going. But I've been doing a lot of fun women's fiction. I've been doing a lot of romance. I've been spending some time trying to figure out what the difference is between women's fiction and romantic comedy and romance, because that's just sort of for fun. So what do you mean you're trying to figure it out for fun? Are there spreadsheets? Are there charts? Or is this something you think about while you're on the treadmill? I have a podcast with a couple of other writers called Hashtag and Writing, and one of them is a very successful genre romance writer. I'm working on women's commercial fiction. The third is a nonfiction writer. And we will sit around and just, and not just on the podcast, we will literally sit around and go, okay, you know, what makes it a romance? Okay, there are rules. In a romance, you know, they have to get the, and there have to be sort of X scenes. There are actually sort of established rules of what makes a romance versus a romantic comedy, which usually has a sidekick who maybe doesn't get their person and then women's fiction the romance can't be at the center but it can ha anyway there are rules is too strong and yet there are kind of rules it's really interesting oh well and once you start discovering then basically you're obligated to go through a phase you're just angry when you start noticing that people refer to nicholas sparks novels as romance yes what I get angry about is when people are like, oh, it's just romance because romance is fun <laughs> and they're wonderful to read. And, you know, I feel like science fiction and fantasy have managed to transcend that. And some romance has. It is really funny what ends up on the genre shelves and what ends up on the fiction shelves. And I have also, because I just read a lot, I've been um, having some fun with some science fiction-y slash magical realism is more I, I guess how you would say it. Is this a new field of exploration for you? No, it's similar to the mystery. It's going back. I moved around a lot as a kid. 
I wasn't super sociable. I was the kid who always had my nose in my book. I was the kid with the book that she wasn't supposed to be reading inside the book that she was supposed to be reading in class. I was the kid in the library at recess. All the cliches. I am them. I can picture like thousands of listeners just nodding right now. I think so. That's what Mm -hmm. I love about what should I read next is that I just feel like I'm with my people. Yes, you absolutely are. And KJ, I have to tell you that when you filled out your submission form at what should I read next podcast.com slash guest, I don't know if you realize this, but the submission you sent us was different than others we've gotten before. Do you want to guess how? Uh, longer. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, yes. Because we always ask guests to tell us three books you love, one book that wasn't for you, and what you've been reading lately. So you listed one book that wasn't for you, two books that you've been reading lately, and then you added a section called Extra Recent Reads and Information. <laughs> and there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one. There are twenty-two books here, which I thought was so much fun and probably says a lot about your reading life. Yeah. Well, I should say I'm a really fast reader. I am a skimmy kind of reader. If I'm not liking a book, bam, it's gone. Okay. KJ, what do you want to be different in your reading life? I've been trying to read not just at bedtime. I've been trying to have weekend and even weekday times when I'm actually sitting with the book and laptop and the phone are put aside. I haven't been a daytime reader in a while now, unless I'm listening to an audiobook while I'm doing something with my hands or unless I'm going on a run. But I'm in a place right now where I've been reconfiguring like all my work schedules. I'm supposed to be on book tour. I'm not. My kids are home because their school's out. And so I'm dealing with a lot of life. And I know that 2 to 4 p.m. is a time when my kids were younger and I was working from home. I love to read then for just a little bit because that's not a time of day where I can do any productive writing. Mm -hmm. I've learned that the hard way by trying and it's like bashing my head against the wall. So I'd read a chapter or two of a good book and drink a cup of coffee and look at my to-do list and then regroup and move on starting at about two in the afternoon when my mental energy just plummets. But what I found is that as we are reconfiguring what life looks like in my home and in my workplace, because they're the same thing for a lot of us right now, I'm realizing that when I have that low energy time of day, I go straight to the news and just keep scrolling. And I thought, well, I don't need to know that much news. I have 40 pages left in this book that I couldn't quite finish last night. I'm going to do that now instead. So I'm experimenting with daytime reading in a way I haven't been in a while. And I'd love to hear about your own not evening reading experiments. I would try to take a couple hour block on a weekend and I will lay on a particular, you know, particular couch and the dogs will come in. And if I'm reading on my Kindle, I might knit while I read because I can do that. If I'm reading a paper book, I typically, it's hard to knit and read a paper book because of the pages and everything. And if it's winter, I'll light a fire. I'll really sort of make a thing about it. And I sometimes I'll have a kid drift in with their book as well. And that's sort of, certainly that's part of my hope, but I'm really doing it for me. How's that working for you? Because it sounds like that's new. That's something new you're trying. It definitely, it works. I mean, there are weekends when we have so much stuff that it's really hard to Mm. pull that off. Then I just do it at night. Like instead of waiting till bedtime, I'll read after dinner. My kids all play hockey. I tried reading during a hockey game. People really frown on that. Like like you get comments. I can hide headphones under my hat 
or like earbuds. So that can sometimes work. But then sometimes people talk to you. Anyway, I want to be there and watch, but I get really bored if I don't have something else. Yeah, I imagine many readers can relate to that. Well, and also the feeling of just wanting to squeeze in more reading. Even if we feel like we are reading a lot, there's always more that we know that we could be reading. I have one parent on each of two teams who is also a passionate book person. So we just sit and talk books. We've agreed and we look like we're just, you know, we're analyzing the game. That's what we're doing, but we're not. We're just talking books and it's great. Did you know this before or did you recognize each other by the paperbacks you always had in your hands? In one case, I knew it before. And the other case, we just, we kind of came together because of a joint interest in not screaming at the kids on the ice. And, <laughs> <laughs> and then the book thing, I think probably we looked in each other's bags and started to realize, and then we started to have all the same books. We're not just co-parents of ch- kids with things in common. Yeah. We are actual friends, which is, you know, it's a different. My wish for every reader is that they could have their online community of book people because then there is always someone there to talk books when you have a hot take or need to ask a question, they are there for you. But also to have book people in your everyday three-dimensional life that you can like, you know, peek on their side of the bleachers and say, what'd you bring with you today? Yeah. What book is that? How is it? What do you think? Well, I sort of credit your podcast with turning me into someone that talks about books in person with anyone that I can get to because I realized how much I love listening to you and your guest really just dig, like it's always interesting. Even if I don't think I'm gonna have anything in common with a guest or if the books are not, it's just always interesting to hear why people like what they like. I have plenty to talk about at parties now, as long as I just find the right person. I was in a coffee shop at a hockey tournament and I was gonna write, but I didn't have very much time and it wasn't going very well and I had a book with me. So I closed my laptop and I got out my book And I look down the bar, I'm sitting at the bar and there's a guy sitting there and he too has an actual paper book. So I leaned over and I was like, what are the odds? Two people reading actual paper books. And then we got into this long conversation. Uh, We recommended the books we were reading and we talked about all this stuff. And he suggested a particular book to me and I went home and realized that I had actually bought that book the week before at that local bookstore in that town. What? So I immediately started it. But that was super fun. What was the book? The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet by Becky Chambers. And it is thus far extremely fun. But I wish I could be like, I already had the book and I started (laughs) it and you were so right. Readers, if you love What Should I Read Next, you're going to love being part of our Patreon community. That's where we share bonus episodes, including follow-ups with previous guests, interesting conversations that were cut for time reasons, and one great book style episodes where I tell you all about recent reads that I adore. In addition to the extra audio, you get access to our super secret spreadsheet vault with the full list of all the books guests love and my three recommendations from every episode in an easy-to-search format. And on occasion, we get together live online for Ask Us Anything-style conversations, and events like our 90-minute fall book preview and summer reading guide unboxing. Join for all these perks and to be part of the community behind What Should I Read Next. Go to patreon.com slash what should I read next. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash what should I read next to become a member today. Patreon.com slash what should I read next. Well, KJ, I would love to hear more about the books that you love. You know what we do here. I do. So you're going to tell me three books you love, one book you don't, (laughs) what you've been reading lately. (laughs) And then we'll talk about what you may enjoy reading next. How did you choose these? Um, How did I choose? It was really hard. So I thought, well, what do I want 
someone to know about what I read? What would be representative? So I kind of was trying to look for things that I want to read more things like, if that makes any sense. I picked Gaudy Night by Dorothy Sayers. It's one of her Lord Peter Whimsey mystery series, but the reason I love it has very little to do with the mystery and a great deal to do with the, I guess it's a very intellectual romance going on at the same time. People who love Dorothy Sayers and the Lord Peter Whimsey books either love that or they hate it because it's all from his love interest's point of view. It's not from his point of view. And it's it's just very different, but it's set it's set at Oxford, and I do tend to like books with academic settings. It's got a huge sort of feminist side story, and that is really interesting to me. It's a really interesting look right before World War II. It would have been the 30s. I like getting a glimpse from a contemporaneous author. I was also trying to pick books that I had reread frequently, mm-hmm. and that's when I have reread a lot. And then with my second book, actually, I picked something I have never reread and may very well never reread because it is so much exactly what I'm looking for. I picked There's a Word for That by Sloane Tannen. I bought it at Book People in Austin in May of 2018. I know where I bought all my books and what bookstore and what. Yeah, okay, that's that's a little embarrassing, but I do. Anyway, that's where I bought it. <laughs> is it embarrassing, though? I find it's incredibly convenient. Yeah, because <laughs> then you can pinpoint in time. I mean, often those facts are verifiable. If you don't right. keep a reading journal, you're not going to be able to look and see like what you read in April 2017. But your calendar probably knows. My Google calendar definitely knows what city I was in. When I was yeah. there. It's kind of funny because I bought it because Gretchen Rubin had blurbed it and she never blurbs fiction and I love her and she's a friend. And I thought, wow, she's I've never seen her blurb fiction. And that's so ridiculous because I am a writer and I blurb things and I know, I know the way blurbs work. I know they don't really mean very much. I want them to mean same and yet I still listen to them. Anyway, Gretchen was totally right. It was an incredibly fun story about a failed child actress trying to find a life for herself. It has this one character who's basically, what if J.K. Rowling was a really, really mean drunk? And I don't want J.K. Rowling to be a mean drunk. But man, reading about the idea of someone in her position. Well, it's the tone of the book. It turns the volume up on people's traits so loud that it just becomes ridiculous. Yes. Not in the, are you kidding me? But in the like gut laughing sense. Yeah, in a joyful way. So this writer, she's written a whole book series of books with the same name as her, as her son. So it's as though J.K. Rowling had a son named Harry Potter who stubbornly was refusing to not to use any different name and going through life, you know, when people at coffee shops say, what's your name, saying Harry Potter and having them laugh. All of those pieces just really worked for me. And then it was just this really funny and yet tender book with a great and satisfying ending. She really stuck the landing, which can be so hard. I just liked it a lot. So while I might never read it again, and I might, mostly I just wanted to like share it and and make all my friends read it. (laughs) That was really for me. Not every book has to be something I need to reread every year. That would get a little bit daunting. So that's, there's a word for that by Sloan Tannen. Right. And the third book I picked was, I think I picked Life Among the Savages, but I might have picked Raising Demons. Both are by Shirley Jackson. Both are her family stories. Um, I love her fiction as well, but I go back time and time and time again to the way that she wrote about raising her family in a small town in Vermont that's actually fairly close close to me. Anybody who's a fan of her is going to recognize that it's just the way 
that she writes so bitterly and angrily and yet so lovingly about her role as this incredibly talented housekeeper to her four rambunctious kids and her honestly less talented than she was, uh, but much better regarded husband. And they're so funny. And a lot of people aren't familiar with this side of Shirley Jackson at all. But if you're wondering that she writes the kind of writing that like a book lover might understand, she has that quote where she says, their home they live in is old, noisy, and full. When we moved into it, we had two children and 5,000 books. And I expect when we finally overflow and move out again, we will have perhaps 20 children and easily half a million books. Yes, I just love her. Now, KJ, tell me about a book that wasn't right for you. Okay, so a book that wasn't right for me recently was All My Puny Sorrows by Miriam Taze. It's not that this was a bad book, but it was very, 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 it was so much not for me that I was in a hotel at the time and I had to walk it down to the lobby and leave it there. I don't care what happened to it. That book just couldn't even be in my space at that moment in my life. It was well-written. And she's got a new book out that I'm actually kind of intrigued. I'm very intrigued by. So this is not about the author. It's really about what it was. What it was is consistently something that I don't want. So All My Puny Starrows is the story of two sisters, one of whom really wants to kill herself and the other does not want her sister to kill herself. It's not light and it's not funny and it doesn't take that situation lightly. And it's a, you know, it's a real look at mental illness, but I couldn't, I couldn't relate. And at the time I was going through breast cancer and really clinging to my life and everything about it. So I, this is probably a testament to the writer that she did it this well, but I just couldn't take it. I just couldn't be there. What Miriam Taze does so well is write about heavy topics with deep thoughtfulness and sensitivity. Like Women Talking, her new one, I really appreciated the way she did that there. But she's still writing about heavy topics, and they can be so hard for some readers to read. And I hear what you're saying, like that the way she made you feel was a testament to how well she did what she did. But I mean, if a book is well written, that still doesn't mean that it's right for every reader. That's not how books and reading works. And I can totally relate to the experience of needing to um, remove a book from your <laughs> presence so you didn't have to look at it because you just could not. Yeah. No, so it I was just, gone in the morning, the book was? <laughs> I did not I did not return to that part of the lobby to look. I don't know where okay. it went. It's, Wouldn't it's even gone. cast it's, your it's eyes in that direction. It's in Madrid somewhere. Somewhere in Madrid, an English language copy of this book is floating around without my help. After I abandoned that book, I just, I kept having the experience of picking up a book only to find that it had breast cancer as a, or just plain cancer, as a strong plot element. What it made me think about was, you know, trigger warnings that people give when they're talking about books mm -hmm. and trigger warnings that we'll see uh, in book re reviews. And I've always kind of had a scornful attitude towards those, like, sort of like, oh, come on, you know, you can spot this stuff for yourself, just put it down, whatever. Having this experience and really just not even wanting to turn the page and see the words really made me think about why there's really good reasons to have those trigger warnings. They are not silly. Like I picked up Jennifer Weiner's Mrs. Everything. I didn't even read the back because it's Jennifer Weiner, right? I was going to love it. Second page, the breast cancer is back. I, I just couldn't. I love Jennifer Weiner, but no, not then. Now, I mean, I'm, I'm a year later. I'm, I'm through my treatment. I'm not going to die from this right now. That's about all any of us can say. So I, now I can kind of deal with it. But 
I just really didn't want it. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And I know that you weren't saying this is where you were as a reader, but I have seen some in academia, for example, be extremely critical of trigger warning saying like, oh, it's just a new kind of political correctness that Mm -hmm. people only have to read what they're comfortable with. But not reading something that's going to send you into a horrible spiral is, uh, that's really important. And when you're describing your story about reading Mrs. Everything, I'm just thinking of an experience I had Now it's two houses ago, a wildly popular novel that I'd heard so much about, but had completely missed because nobody told me. The novel contained a character who was living out the worst case scenario, but, but very real and possible scenario of a medical diagnosis that affected someone close to me. And I just, mm-hmm. I had no idea. I really, I would not have picked up the book if I had known that. I continued reading it, telling myself like, it's just a novel, it's fine. It was not fine. And I'm so sorry I read it. And I wish, I wish someone had told me, but these are so hard, KJ, as I know you know, because, so I'm all in favor of trigger warnings. And yet they can be so hard to give, especially if readers are looking for something that's not commonly acknowledged as a trigger. Like if you don't want to read a book about cancer or you don't right. want to read a book that involves adultery, like it can be really hard for readers who aren't sensitive to those issues, even if they're trying their best to remember, even if they've read that book cover to cover, they may not necessarily remember that one scene or that minor character or how it played out because it wasn't the most important thing in the story. But to the person who picks up a book and really doesn't need to encounter that topic right now, it can seem to be the most important thing in the story. Yeah, it's absolutely tricky. I do have a favorite place where I've stumbled upon trigger warnings in a book, not the triggers themselves, but the trigger warnings. And it's in a Taylor Jenkins read novel before she really like took a hard turn with her career and went in a different direction, which I'm fascinated by. But the book is One True Loves. It came out maybe four, five years ago. This is like the movie Castaway. But in this version, the Tom Hanks character comes home just before the wedding. Our protagonist, Emma, she and her husband are travel writers. He dies in a tragic accident off the coast of somewhere over a large body of water. He, he disappeared. He's never coming home. Her parents own a bookstore, so they're all huge readers. She wants to pick up a book to read. She's mourning, and she picks up a book. She's not expecting it, but the husband dies. Oh. I know. And of course, she didn't know because it was a plot twist. Right, And it's hard because some things that are spoilers to some people are trigger warnings to others. So that does get tricky. And I want to acknowledge that without diminishing the importance of trigger warnings. If your husband just died, you don't want to read a book where the husband dies. Right. I love that this is meta because it's a character who has this happen to them. I love that. It is. And in the next scene, her parents, the big readers who own the bookstore, she stumbles upon them in the living room with stacks and stacks of books between them. And they are proofing every page so they can give her a big stack of books where no husbands die. And I just thought, oh, that's just the most loving example of book (laughs) recommending I've ever encountered in the pages of a novel. Well, I guess a little ironically, I actually was, I had a friend who had cancer a few years ago, and that's what I was, I was in charge of making sure she was not given any books with cancer in them. I've actually done that. You're a good friend. I needed someone to do it for me. And maybe someone who doesn't read all the time won't understand the significance of that, but readers get it, KJ. Yeah, you need that. You need that. So if you have a friend who's going through something, there's something you can offer to do. KJ, tell me what you're looking for in your reading life right now. I am looking for smart. Okay, um, two things. I'm looking for smart fiction that is fun and entertaining and pretty light. I don't, I'm not feeling the need to read about 
darkness and even more so now that the world has is getting super weird but i also want it to be i want it to have some meaning i want it to have some depth and that is not to say you know a really light fun book like uh, there's a word for that can have a lot of meaning and depth so i want smart but fun entertaining and i guess i'd like the issues that we look at to be more universal and thoughtful rather than sort of specific not too much topical angst, I guess. Oh, the other thing that I really dislike in a book, and one of the reasons I think I tend to read more commercial fiction and not so much literary fiction, I really like my characters to grow and change. If a character starts out in one place at, at the beginning of a book, I want them to realize something about themselves and have learned and moved on by the end of it. I find that it's sometimes in literary fiction, I almost feel like the fun for the reader is in not, seeing them not change. Like seeing them sort of muddle through this situation without ever fixing it. I personally find that extremely frustrating. So I'm not looking for that. And then I'm always looking for a good memoir. Okay, we can work with this. Okay. So KJ, you love Gaudy Night by Dorothy Sayers. There's a word for that by Sloane Tannen and Raising Demons and also Life Among the Savages by Shirley Jackson. Not For You was All My Puny Sorrows by Miriam Taze. And we're looking for books that are fun and hopeful, yet also smart and thoughtful. We don't want to find things that are sad and stressful. Uh I feel like all the books I'm about to tell you are books that are for you, which means I feel like there's a high probability that you will have read them already and we're just going to keep going. (laughs) Okay. The first one is Limelight by Amy Popple. Do you know this one? I love her. And you're right. That is for me. What I like about this is it's lighthearted and funny, but goes to the underlying themes you were just talking about with separation anxiety. Like, no one is an island. We all need help. Your life can look really freaking amazing on the outside and still be a disaster, as it is in the case of the... um, I I picture the pop star here being Justin Bieber. Is that wrong? Or does that just mean I'm old (laughs) and he's the only pop star I could come up with that... No, I think it works. I think it works. I'm thinking about Abby Waxman. She has a new book called I Was Told It Would Get Easier with No Cancer Incidences. I would love to read that. And I did not know. I think I vaguely knew she had a a new book coming. We've actually had her as a guest on the podcast. This is great. Okay. New Abby Waxman. I just finished reading this because I am also, I imagine as many readers are at this moment in time, putting my heavy hitting, deep thought provoking, sad literary fiction on hold. I love that stuff. I love a sad book, but not at this specific moment in time and timing is everything. So I picked up the new Abby Waxman and I wasn't sure if my timing was amazing or awful on this because it's about a mother daughter duo on a college tour. And those college, I mean, I'm in the middle of college visits right now. So I thought either this is going to be amazing or this is going to make me want to curl up in the fetal position. Oh, it was so fun. So this is narrated from two perspectives. We have a heavy hitting female attorney who's a solo parent to a sweet dear girl named Emily, but their relationship is not real great right now, um, which means the timing for this long planned group college tour to the East Coast to see a bunch of exclusive schools there is either perfect or anything but. But of course, is in any novel 
with a mother-daughter duo on a road trip, they're each dealing with some junk. So they're dealing with it individually and then they take their troubles on the road and it gets a lot more complicated and a little bit silly. I mean, it's it's serious. Like the mother's having issues at work because her boss is a jerk who's not promoting women because he doesn't want to basically. And so the female attorney has threatened to quit and she's freaked out about it because she has a high paying job that drives her crazy sometimes, but she wants it and she's got to pay for college. And so the thought of being unemployed is terrifying. And her daughter is dealing with something that's a little slower burn. And I'm just going to let you discover that because it really surprised me how it played out. But she's talking about issues that really matter in a way that is easy to read and won't give you nightmares if you read it right before bed. This is going to be perfect. Absolutely. I am calling up slash emailing my local bookstore and asking them to put that on my already deep orders stack. (laughs) So that is I Was Told It Would Get Easier by Abby Waxman. What a great title. All right, KJ, listeners can't see this from your submission, but on your submission that you did say you love a juicy insider look at media, magazines, TV, and food professions. So much. If you have written that book, just send it to me and I will read it. Okay. If you haven't already read this, I think it's just about perfect. Have you read Save Me the Plums by Ruth Rachel? I have not read Save Me the Plums. If you love an insider look at food, magazines, Oh, it's so much fun. And I, okay, I'm a writer. I am interested in the behind the scenes of pretty much everything. And especially the magazines I like to read, the writing I'm interested in, um, recipes I've cooked from. Plus, I know that I love Ruth Reichel's food writing, especially I think Garlic and Sapphires was my favorite. Till now, Save Me the Plums might have unseated it. But I wasn't a devoted gourmet magazine reader, even though I, I do remember asking my internist years ago when I was young and had no money for magazine subscriptions, um, hey, can I, it's January, can I sneak out of here with a December like Christmas cookie issue so I can, you know, just read it repeatedly when I need a comfort read? And she was like, yes, totally, absolutely. <laughs> That's awesome. That was a pretty magazine. You it was know, so pretty. It was, I love magazines. It had like, the square spine instead of like the foldy spine. And it was so glossy. It was so lovely. Oh, a moment of mourning for gourmet. And then it had lots of writing, not just recipes. <sighs> well, and she talks about the writing in this book. So the story picks up in 1999 when she's still the food critic at the New York Times. And she's asked to take a meeting and offered another dream job, which is to take over at Gourmet, where the owner, the CEO, I don't I don't speak magazine, but somebody important is saying, hey, we've gotten stodgy and we got to change. So we want to make it relevant to today's cooks. We think you can do it. Come on over. And she says, no way. And then we know she said yes. So what happens is she pulls you alongside for like, it's about 10 tumultuous years. It starts in 99 where they're like, here, here's a ton of money. Use all our resources and revamp everything. (laughs) Oh, 1999. 1999. Oh man, I wasn't a writer in 1999. (laughs) I've heard friends talk about what it was like to get paid in that decade in the magazine years. And I, it just doesn't sound real. So she talks about how she took stock of the magazine and she looked at the cook she knew in the reader she knew were out there and was like, okay, this is what has to change. And hearing her thought process and then seeing with this long delay, like she's had plenty of time to reflect on that. And I personally really like a memoir that's coming from that place of processed reflection. Oh, ditto. I hate it when people write their memoir too soon and you just end up sitting there going, you know, 
This was for your therapist. (laughs) Exactly. And this isn't like that. So you get to hear the big picture stuff. You get to see what her day-to-day job was like. She describes the workings of the test kitchen. And also she describes how they chose which essays to run. And I was fascinated by the specific many pages devoted to David Foster Wallace's notorious piece, Consider the Lobster, with all the footnotes like he did in Gourmet Magazine. Yes. It's so fascinating. Oh, I can't wait to read that. I had no idea that was out there. It came out about a year ago in April 2019. It's wonderful on audio. I'm not an audiobook girl, but I'm sometimes like a memoir that way, so I might try it that way. It's a joy. I mean, even as she's navigating how the bottom fell out and everybody went broke and lost their jobs and showed up to work and there was a sign on the door, it's a joy to read. I bet. She's an amazing writer. I read her memoir of her childhood and liked it a lot, but just didn't, hadn't kept up. Okay. KJ, we've got one more pick and there's so many different directions we could go. <laughs> Priorities, priorities, priorities. Okay, I'm going to go with something that I think is flying a little more below the radar. That would be harder to find otherwise. Oh, good. Although sometimes it's just because the people I know aren't talking about it. And that doesn't mean that not everyone is reading it elsewhere. But what do you know about Love Lettering by Kate Claiborne? I know that I picked it up randomly at a bookstore, but didn't. It was the same one where I bought The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. I didn't know anything about it really. And I probably wasn't going to put it on top of this stack. So I'm really excited to hear you say that it's good because I already have it. Well, it's so pretty. And I think it might be a really fun one for you to read. It's not that bad things don't happen in the story, but... A book where nothing bad happens. I mean, I've read a couple of... (laughs) Wait, that's not a novel. Yeah, exactly. Every so often, British writers in particular who do series this, every so often they'll put out one in the middle, middle of their series where nothing happens. And you're like, wow. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in this book, bad stuff happens because that's how novels work. Plot is propelled forward by conflict. But the conflict here is not provided by breast cancer, but by the threat of professional doom and other kinds of splashy scandal. It's a more enjoyable kind of bad stuff to read about if it hasn't happened to you. And unless you have had like professional doom hanging over your head because you forecast someone's future in their wedding program because of where you place the fairies <laughs> on the font. I mean, this, this this is not a problem you've encountered, right? It's going to be okay to read about? No, that's not one of my triggers. I think I'll be okay. okay. I think it might be fun to read this book about this woman who makes her living with her hands by doing gorgeous lettering and other kind of visual design for the exclusive set of clients who can afford to pay her in Brooklyn's Park Slope neighborhood. Well, that is one of my imaginary lives. It's so different from so many books I've read that could have been similar in a lot of ways. So what happens is this poor woman, Meg, did encode a secret message on somebody's wedding program, and it has come back to haunt her. In the wedding program, she encodes the word mistake because she thought it was. But when it comes out that she did this, other people are not amused. All of a sudden, she's notorious. And what kind of letterer is notorious? That's not the only thing going badly for her in her life. But 
seeing how she works it through and seeing the way she approaches her work is so fun. So two elements I think you'll really enjoy are the trip she takes just walking around New York City for inspiration and then her inner monologue as she approaches her work. Like the first Mm -hmm. line of her book is, on Sunday, I work in sans serif. And she narrates you through like why she chooses- Font nerdiness. Font nerdiness. This is so for me, yeah. All you had to say was font nerdiness, really, and I I would have been there. I like to bury my lead, or at least I can't (laughs) help it. (laughs) I suspect I know the answer to this question, but of the books we talked about today, I Was Told It Would Get Easier by Abby Waxman, Save Me the Plums, My Gourmet Memoir by Ruth Reichel, and Love Lettering by Kate Claiborne. KJ, which of these do you think you'll read next? I'm absolutely going for love lettering because I have it and I can start it right away. And also it sounds like it's just exactly the right flavor for what I need right now. I hope you love it. Thank you. I feel pretty good about it. KJ, thanks so much for talking books with me today. I don't think I've ever had so much fun being a guest on a podcast. Hey readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with KJ today. I'd love to hear what you think she should read next. That page is at what should I read next podcast.com slash 240. And it's where you will find the full list of titles we talked about today. Visit KJ online at her website, kjdelantonia.com and check out her podcast, hashtag am writing. I got to be a guest recently and had a delight talking all things books and reading and publishing with them. KJ has a new book coming out July 28th. It's called The Chicken Sisters. It's available July 28th from Putnam. I hope you'll check it out. Subscribe to our show now so you don't miss next week's episode in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. We will see you next week. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B is in books, O-G-E-L. Follow the show on Twitter at Read Next Podcast and follow us on Instagram at What Should I Read Next. Our newsletter subscribers are the first to know all the What Should I Read Next news and happenings. If you're not on the list, fix that now by visiting whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter to sign up for our free weekly delivery. If you enjoy this podcast, would you share the book love by telling a friend or leaving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts? That really goes a long way towards helping other readers find the show, and we appreciate it so much. Thanks to the people who make this show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Bekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. <laughs>